Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Well, good morning, Waynesboro FM Church family. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, this looks absolutely no different. But for those of you who are here in person today, you aren't fooled because you're realizing that I'm not here in person today. Uh, guys, this is actually a pre-recording for those of you who are watching on the live stream. Uh, this is not what I had envisioned for our Advent season. Some of you know, some of you, actually most of you don't know. Um, earlier this week, my wife and I and our family, we were exposed unknowingly to COVID-19. Yet again, <laughs> this changed our plans last Thanksgiving, and uh, it canceled our plans this Thanksgiving as well. Quite ironic. Um, so I am uh, pre-recording this message for you, uh, kicking off this Advent season. Uh, I was speaking to just some of the leaders here, and we thought of maybe getting a guest speaker to preach, uh, to get in here and preach. But uh, we realized that the, that the Lord had planned out some things for this Advent season that we wanted to make sure happened, and the leadership thought it'd be a good idea for us to do this. So sorry to disappoint for those of you who are in this room uh, and are having to watch this online. For those of you who are on live stream, just enjoy it like you normally do. Uh, but I, I apologize for that. I, I will just give you an update on my family. My kids, uh, everybody's fine. All my kids have tested positive. My wife and I are still testing negative, but nobody hardly has any symptoms at all. Uh, it's, it's, it's going okay. We're also confident that nobody has been exposed uh, in our church family to this. Um, this was just something that was pretty much isolated to our family. So uh, we got a good Thanksgiving at home and it was a blast. So don't think that we are suffering uh, in any way. Um, this is light and momentary for us. Uh, but I am excited to kick off this Advent season with you guys. Uh, so if you could have your Bibles out, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be walking through uh, the next several weeks in our Advent season as we go through this sermon series called A Light Has Dawned. And, and as you can see, guys, we've, we've, we've decked out the, the, the halls here, right? We've, we, we've decked it out for Christmas. And, 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 and I want to, first off, just thank uh, several individuals who have been a part of decorating. Thank you, ladies. I know Leah and Debbie have been integral in that, along with their husbands. And thank you, Dave's and, and everybody else who's been participating in decorating for us here. And um, I, I, think, I think it's a really good thing, and it looks great. Um, let me uh, just do this. I know I can't see any of you, uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask a question that requires you to raise your hands. Let me see if you've already got your Christmas decorations up. Yep, I, I have already. That was what Friday was, and it was a blast. It was cold outside, but we got it done. Uh, keep your hand raised if you had your decorations up the day after Halloween. You're outing yourself, kind of. I'm going to go ahead and actually do something. I'm going to out uh, Debbie Simpson. She's my uh, secretary here. She's the church office manager. Um, guys, uh, it was September when I started hearing Christmas music come from her office. So, and I'm pretty sure she never took down her Christmas tree. Uh, all it's all uh, it's been up in her house all year. So, uh, just outing her. Sorry, Debbie. Love you, sis. Um, let me ask this. Uh, I'm guessing many of you have already. Um, Binged watch some Hallmark Christmas movies, right? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if you had. Um, 
guys, it's just like the anticipation is rising now, isn't it? It's it's building. Christmas is coming. Uh, you've seen all the commercials shift, right? They've they're they're now marketing Christmas as the reason to go to Jared's, right? Or as the reason to buy your spouse a new Lexus or a new Mercedes and put that little big red bow on top, right? They're they're advertising that you need to go drink a Coke with a polar bear or or warm up your soul with some Campbell's chicken noodle soup, right? Guys, we love this, right? We love the anticipation. We, we love this season. You, you know how I know we love this season? Honestly, it's because it starts earlier and earlier every year, right? <laughs> For some reason, that's what happens. But you know why I think we love this season so much? I think it's because we long for the reality that all the commercials and all the movies and all the marketing and all the songs are proclaiming, all the picture that they're painting. This whole season of Advent, we're being bombarded with commercials and television specials and classic Christmas movies that promise us what I would say one philosopher has called a hyper-reality a hyper-reality. It's a reality that's not in step with actual life. So like Hallmark Christmas movies, for example, build up the anticipation that, that you know, you, your story, you're going to get stuck in this small little town called Cookie Jar, and, and you're going to help a family business that's failing, and who knows, you're actually going to end up finding the love of your life all by Christmas Eve. And yet when when Christmas Day comes and, and all the hype vanishes when the sun goes down, we're left wondering, is that it? Like, where, where's, where's my Lexus? <laughs> or better yet, where's my soulmate? And yet this, this just doesn't even come close to the hype and the anticipation that God has promised to his suffering and rebellious people, Israel, throughout the whole Old Testament. And, and, and yet, the anticipation, the buildup doesn't just vanish at sundown. It actually incarnates. It incarnates in this little baby boy in a manger, Jesus the Christ. And Isaiah chapter 9, where, where we're going to be this Advent season, is one of the clearest passages for Advent that builds up the sense of anticipation for this coming child who's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So we're going to be dropping anchor here in Isaiah 9 for this Advent season in this chapter because we quote it every year, right? And my hope is that as we study this, our anticipation for this season will shift from all the colorful lights and the warm soups and, and the presents under the tree. They'll shift to the longing and the realization of Emmanuel, God with us. So let's get started with this. You know how, um, you know how people these days often find those creative ways to announce the fact that they've got a baby on the, on the way, like a, like a bun in the oven, right? Or uh, I saw one guy who, uh, one couple who had the father holding uh, two bags of ice and the mom pointing to her belly and it meant ice, ice, baby, which, which is great. I, my cousin actually uh, shot a, a block of exploding chemicals called Tannerite and it, and it shot up the, the color of the gender, which was pretty cool. Um, all the rednecks in here say amen, right? 
back then kings would do it too, right? I'm not saying they would explode tannerite or or have bags of ice. I'm saying that that, 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 that that they would announce the arrival of their child. They'd make this public announcement to their nation that they've had a child. And in similar fashion, God is doing that in this chapter. This chapter is almost like God is making an announcement about a newborn. God is announcing to the world the news of his newborn son. And in this announcement, he's proclaiming to the world all that his son will bring and do. And trust me, it's not going to be a letdown, right? God's not just building this hyper reality for us and then ultimately going to end in just some sort of bummer of a day, right? No, no, it's, it's going to be an incredible reality. And if you aren't already there yet in Isaiah 9, let me just kind of build up the scene for you, where we're at in context. So, all throughout the Old Testament, God has been inviting Israel to walk in relationship with him. We see that all the way from Genesis to, to, to where we are here. We saw that when God uh, drew Israel out of slavery to Egypt to draw them in, right? We, we see it over and over again. God calls out his people to come and walk with him, to be close to him. That's what he desires. And we, we see it in chapter 2, verse 5 of Isaiah. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But all we see from chapters 1 through 8 in this book of Isaiah so far is Israel just rebelling against God, turning their backs to him, chasing after other gods. In fact, we're introduced in chapter 7 to a guy named King Ahaz, right? King Ahaz was just a wicked king of Israel who shut down the temple of our God, Yahweh, Israel's God, and he put up altars to other gods throughout the whole kingdom. Now, usually when Israel breaks that kind of covenant, breaks their covenant with God in that kind of way, God just allows them to experience the natural consequences that come from that, right? And and he does it here. In chapter 7, we see that these two foreign kings and their kingdoms threaten to wage war against Judah, right? And Ahaz, King Ahaz, who is absolutely terrified, goes to God, and God seeks to comfort him. And, and he says in verse 14 of chapter 7, here's a sign for you. Here's a sign from me to you. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. So God's promising this, but he also says, but before this boy comes, all of Israel will be laid waste to. All wealth will be stripped away and cities will be destroyed by other kingdoms because of your rebellion. Goodness, you seek counsel from necromancers and mediums and you reject my wisdom. In fact, let me just show you how chapter Eight ends in verse 22. It says, And Israel will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Guys, this is the backdrop of this passage. This is the condition of God's people. They're in gloomy darkness. They're in despair and distress, destruction and distance. But God doesn't leave them there. 
No, he's, he's already given them a promise of a sign of a boy who would be God with them. And so he begins to console his people who are in just utter anguish and they're in despair. And he consoles them by making this royal birth announcement, the birth of his son, a light dawning in the darkness. So let's read verses one through seven together. It says this, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Some of you didn't realize that that was in the Advent passage, did you? <laughs> we usually skip over that. Verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, we're only going to be in verse one today. And God starts out this consolation by promising that this anguish is going to be removed from Israel. And then he says something that's a bit interesting, is it not? He says that, that he brought into contempt or he humbled two lands, two regions called Zebulun and Naphtali or Naphtali, however you want to pronounce it. Why? Why did he do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're, we're paying attention these two regions made up the larger region called Galilee, which you may have heard of it. You see it later on in verse 1, even. Zebulun and, and Naphtali were located in the northern part of Israel. And when foreign powers came to invade, attack, and conquer Israel, like you see several times in Isaiah chapters 1 through 8, they would have to come from the north, which meant that the first people that they would encounter on their conquest to Jerusalem would be those Israelites living in Zebulun and Naphtali. And this region is often called the way by the sea, which you see it here. And since it was the road 
that invaders would use to get to the heart of Israel. And throughout Israel's history, its residents were just consistently laid waste to by the invading armies and nations. And as attacking nations would come in, they would conquer, they would rape, they would pillage, they would destroy these regions and then move on to attack Jerusalem. Now, if Jerusalem just so happened to repel the invasion, armies would be forced back through these lands. And you know, the only thing more angry than an invading soldier is a retreating soldier in defeat. You tracking with me there? It didn't get better. And this constant cycle of invasion and destruction meant that these two regions, Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee as a whole, they were some of the poorest regions in all of Israel. In fact, people lived in these territories because they were just too poor to live anywhere else, and they were too poor to move. And not only that, but these these regions were too often giving way to the pressures of like disbelief and compromise from the influence of other cultures and religions moving into the area as Gentiles made these areas their homes. Gentiles just mean non-Jews. And as these non-Jews moved in, religious compromise, moral compromise just increased. In fact, these two territories became so disdained for their ethnic diversity that they earned the title Galilee of the Nations, which you see it in verse 1, which literally translates the circle of Gentiles, a region infiltrated by non-Jews. Guys, this was meant to be derogatory in a racist sense. This was a negative title that shows how pervasive non-Hebrew people and cultures had set up shop in this area. So in summary, right, when we're talking about Zebulun and Naphtali, these two lands were compromised, religiously, ethnically tainted and disdained. They were drowning in poverty, and it was a normal thing for them to experience the destruction invading armies would bring as they sought to conquer Israel. Surely this land had been humbled and despised. Surely this land was in the gloomy darkness of despair. Guys, God says that that was the former time. And God makes a promise to these people here in verse 1. He promises a time to come, a future time to come, where he will bring honor or make glorious this region called Galilee. Now, to be honored means to to shine glory. It means to make wealthy. It means to distinguish. It means to set apart. In this future, the time when the sign of a baby boy born of a virgin, right? We saw in 714, that when he shows up, that's when these lands will experience the honor of God where God will honor these lands. God is promising that the most despised 
area of Israel, the far northern section that was most militarily oppressed and most influenced by pagan religion, will in some way be honored by God when he sends this sign, Emmanuel. So think about it. Think about this. These people who for years had been pummeled perpetually by invading armies and rejected by their own people are hearing God promise to them that their lands were going to be honored, made glorious, distinguished. Guys, not not a single king in all of Israel's history could ever guarantee the safety and security or even the restoration of this land. And yet here God is promising this. Do you think that built up some anticipation? Right? You, you, you think that started getting some hype in the Jerusalem Street Journal? You think the ads on the TV started changing? Guys, God officially puts these people in a season of Advent, awaiting the anticipated arrival of one distinguished individual, and that lasted over 600 years, awaiting the arrival of this one who would make these lands honorable again. How is he going to do it? What what was this going to look like? Enter Jesus, the baby boy born of the Virgin Mary. Emmanuel, he who is promised in chapter 7. If you track Jesus' life, at first they took a flight to Egypt, not literally a plane, but they, they uh, sought to escape to Egypt for fear of, of being killed by the leadership. After that, his family returns And they settle in what city? Nazareth. They settle in Nazareth, a city in the lower part of Galilee. Remember, Galilee was where this land was that had been so pillaged and pummeled. It was in Galilee's section of the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And it was in Galilee's wilderness where Jesus was tempted and he overcame. It was in the synagogue in Galilee where Jesus revealed himself as the one anointed by God to set the captives free, just as Isaiah 61 promises. It was in Galilee where Jesus called his disciples and did his first miracle of turning water into wine. It was in Galilee where Jesus paid the tax with a coin from a fish, where he healed the paralytic lowered through the roof, where he delivered the man possessed by a legion of demons, where he healed the woman who had been bleeding her whole life, where he healed the Roman centurion's servant, where he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, where he walked on water and calmed the raging storm. You see what this is? Galilee a land shrouded in the darkness of suffering and sin, destruction and despair, is exactly where God decides 
to let his light dawn. Guys, Galilee becomes ground zero for the dawning of God's glorious power. Guys, Jesus establishes Galilee as the beachhead of God's invasion on earth in his war against sin and death and darkness and oppression and despair and violence and hate and sickness and poverty and brokenness and shame. As Jesus takes this land oppressed by darkness for centuries and makes it glorious. Jesus, because of who he is, purchases this land back from the dominion of darkness with his own blood and brings it into the kingdom of light. (laughs) So can't you see what this means? Can't you hear what God's announcing to his people? This is what he's saying. Your affliction isn't too deep for God to redeem. It's it's not. Your affliction isn't too deep for God to redeem it for some sort of good. What I mean by redemption, what I mean by to redeem means, it means to, to pay a price in order to secure the release of something or someone. It, it, it connotes the idea of paying what is required in order to liberate from oppression or enslavement or another type of binding obligation. Guys, God is in the business of buying back things oppressed by affliction or sin and making them glorious. In other words, no one has a history that's too shameful that God cannot purchase and repurpose for his purposes and delight. Let me say that again. No one has a history too shameful that God cannot purchase and repurpose for his purposes and delight. There's no one too dirty that God cannot wash and make them shine. As God is announcing to the world that Jesus redeems all his people's suffering and shame. He's announcing to the world that this one who is coming, this Jesus, he's going to come and redeem all of God's people's suffering and shame. Why do we know this? Because Jesus was sent to make the payment that redemption required. Guys, the the ransom price had to be paid. And Jesus paid it with his own blood. It is in Jesus that you and I have what I'm calling a hope of redemption. So because the father sent his only son into the world to give his son as a payment for sin, we, you and I, are guaranteed the hope of redemption over our lives, over every minute of it. And every circumstance in it, no matter how broken it may be. So this means that no matter how great the affliction in your life, we believers inherently get to hold on to the hope of redemption 
in Jesus. Even those afflictions that we bring on ourselves because of our own sin. We get to have the hope of redemption. What did you think that Romans 8.28 meant when Paul said it? He said, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Guys, there's, there's no affliction too heavy. There's no person too dirty for Jesus to redeem. This is the hope of redemption. Guys, when Jesus enters the scene, whether it be in broken, impoverished, rebellious Galilee, or whether it be in your own difficult, messy, disjointed life, he radically transforms everything by redeeming it all. As Jesus invaded Galilee with his glory, this messy, abused, despised, rejected, poor region. (laughs) You think you can't do the same thing with your life? So you may feel like your life has been plundered over and over and over again by Satan, by suffering, Maybe you feel like your life is just shrouded in darkness and you're caught in gloom. Maybe your life is too observably stained by the guilt of your past. Friend, this lion of Judah, this Jesus, is roaring with eagerness to invade your life with the light of his glorious redemption. As the the depth of the sorrow that you experience after the loss of your loved one is not too deep for Jesus to redeem. It's just not. The struggles in your marriage or your struggle with addiction to whatever it is, They're not too severe for God to redeem for his glory. Your depression, your cancer, your heart condition, your anxiety is not too overwhelming for God to redeem. Your shame from your past failures, no matter how great or how small, God can redeem. It is never too late for a life that was once lived in rebellion against God to be redeemed by God for God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Advent is promising, a hope of redemption, such that when Jesus comes on the scene, he always, always redeems. The Christian gets to always live with this hope of redemption. It marks our lives. It keeps us on our knees and and it keeps us fighting to believe. Even when life is chaotic and Satan seems like he's getting his way. 
we have a hope of redemption always. So let the anticipation build up in your heart in the middle of your afflictions. Shout out to God when you're on your knees. I know, God, that you can redeem this, and I will just, I will wait on you, God. Friend, you will not be let down. The Christian won't get to the end of their story and think, is that it? <laughs> did, I, did, <laughs> did I miss something? Well, what was all the hype about? No, everything gets redeemed in the Christian's life. God has done it before. He will do it again. He's done it in my life. He's done it in my marriage. He's done it with my broken habits of sin. He's done it in my foolishness, and he's done it in my deepest afflictions. He won't let you down. He won't fail. He can't. He can redeem your affliction. He can redeem your suffering. He can redeem your shame. He can redeem your story. He can redeem you. This is what God is announcing to the world that Jesus is going to do. So if you've never welcomed Jesus into your life for salvation, for lordship, invite him in. Open up the darkest places of your heart. Invite Jesus into the deepest caverns of your thoughts and let him do what he's done billions of times throughout all of history. Redeem what is broken. And if you you know Jesus and you've walked with him for some time and you're in a season of suffering or doubt, brother or sister, live in light of a hope of redemption. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you acknowledging that your word is true, that it's good for our souls to not just read, but to believe, to be convinced of. And God, I, I realize that sometimes when our suffering abounds or our shame gets the best of us, it's hard for us to see the things that you can do because we're caught up in the darkness of despair. God, I pray for those of us who are in that place today, that we would find the light dawning that gives us a hope that you're going to redeem this our suffering, our loss, our pain, our sin, our shame, whatever it is, God, please, would you redeem that today? And Father, I pray that we would live in this hope. For those who are potentially receiving Jesus today, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would welcome them into the sphere of your love as you promised you would. And may they truly experience what it means to be reconciled and redeemed by the Father through the Son, in the Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Love you guys. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. 
For more information about our church, please visit waynesborofm.com.